Well, we are closing out the book of 2 Timothy tonight. So please turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. And I got to tell you, I always get excited about starting a book and ending a book of the Bible. The middle part is pretty cool too, but I, I really, really enjoy it. It's always fun to start something new, and then it's always a great feeling when you, when you finished, and just to know that, hey, we went through, we made it through this summer, First and Second Timothy, and um, just so good to just, just find our way here on Wednesday nights. We're journeying through the Word. So we come today, tonight, to the fourth chapter, and in the movie, The Chariots of Fire, how many of you have ever seen that movie? Okay, quite a few of you that are all old like me. The, the younger people are going like, what? Chariots of what? I've never heard of that. Is that sci-fi? No, it's not. But it was a great movie, and it was based upon the story of the Olympic runner, Eric Liddell, who was a devout Christian. And because of his faith, he refused to run on Sundays. That was his conviction, that, that Sundays would be his Sabbath And so because of that, he ended up missing running in his um, strongest event there in the Olympics. But he went on to run, or excuse me, win the gold medal in another event on another day that he wasn't as strong in, but but he won um, the event. And it's just a great movie. It's one of those classic movies. It won four Academy Awards, including Best Picture. I mean, it was just an amazing, amazing film. But my favorite part of the movie centers around when Eric's sister comes to him and she just thinks he's wasting his time being a runner. And she really thinks that he has a calling on his life to go and be a missionary, which he eventually would end up doing that. He would end up being a missionary for a long time in China. But she comes to him and she says to him, you know, I just feel like you're wasting your time. And his response was this. He says, all I know is that God has made me fast and I feel his pleasure when I run. I love that. And I hope you have something or some things in your life that you have come to learn and discover. You know, I don't know everything about, you know, what God is doing in my life or what his plan is, but all I know is this, is that he's made me this way. Maybe tonight, Rachel, as she's leading worship, you know, that God has given me this gift and this voice, and and I just feel his pleasure when I run when i play i mean i know we weren't we blessed tonight by that worship that they they did and just love when she uses her her gift and leading us in worship um but there, there is something amazing that happens in a life of a person and those around them when they are doing what god created them to do And here in 2 Timothy, Paul has been admonishing young Timothy, his protege, to be faithful in what God had called him to do, to be faithful in what God had called him to be. And Timothy was ministering. He was pastoring the church in Ephesus, and he was ministering during times of growing persecution and growing apostasy, And Paul was admonishing him to stay the course, 
that Timothy had been called and anointed and gifted by God to be a pastor. And we've noted already in our study of this book that, that Paul has been reminding Timothy of that calling. And so we saw in chapter 1, there in verse 6, that he told him to stir up the gift that had been given to him through the laying on of hands. And he says, because God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. And and then in verse 13, he admonished him again in there in chapter 1 to hold fast to the pattern of sound words that he received from the Apostle Paul. And then in chapter 2, he admonished him to teach others and to disciple other men. And in verse 15, he admonished him to be diligent, a diligent student of the word, one who could rightly divide the word of truth. And then we saw last week how he admonished him to continue in the things that you have been taught and to learn and to know that his confidence was to be in the sufficiency of Scripture. So those are the things that we've seen that Paul has been admonishing Timothy in. And as we come to chapter 4, all that Paul has been admonishing Timothy in kind of comes to a crescendo. If this was an orchestra, this would be like the crescendo moment. And and we see here Paul's final admonitions in chapter 4. There's three things. He He admonishes him to preach the word, to watch to endure, and to do the work of an evangelist. Let's pick it up here in verse 1. He says, I charge you therefore. Everybody say charge. I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers and will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Pause there and give me your attention. His first admonition to him is to preach the word. And Paul could not have emphasized the essential nature of preaching any more strongly than he does here. He says, I therefore charge you. I'm giving you a charge, a command. I mean, you think of like the military, like I'm giving you this solemn order, preach the word. He wanted Timothy to be ready in season and out of season. In other words, at any moment, at every opportunity, to preach the word. And Paul's emphasis on the word of God has been constant in this epistle. There have been some 36 references to the true gospel in this letter and 17 to the false teachers. And his emphasis on the preaching following being, being given to the preaching of the, the word also speaks to us of the importance of being hearers of the word. Because the, the pastor, he isn't there to preach to himself. You know, I did that during COVID. It was horrible. 
<laughs> I would come in here. I know that you guys were listening online, but there was no one here. And I was just preaching to an empty room and a camera. And th- that's not what this was designed to be, you know? It's so good to be able to gather together like this. The next phrase in verse 2, though, gives insight into the nature of what biblical preaching is supposed to look like. And I want you to consider, I want us to consider these words. He says convince. That word convince means to reprove or to point out errors. It's the idea of bringing something to light and exposing it. In other words, there is a constant need, and it seems like it's growing every single week to be combating the cultural errors of our day that want to creep into the church. You know, the culture is always wanting to come in and say, this is how you should be thinking, and this is what you should be believing, I think it was G. Campbell Morgan who said this, the task of the preacher was never to catch the spirit of the age, but to correct the spirit of the age. And that's part of what we do. And in, in bringing to, to light, exposing, hey, I know this is what the world says, but this is what the Bible says. You know, I shared with you on Sunday one of my life verses. I'll share it again tonight in Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. It's this verse, Paul again saying, this is my, my motto, my mission. It's him we preach. It's Jesus we preach. That's why out there on that sign and on our sign outside, it says simply Jesus. That's what, that we're, that's what we're about, that we want people come in and we want them to see Jesus. We preach Jesus, but notice how, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ. We preach Jesus, but we warn. We have to warn. We have to say, hey, we need to watch out for this. And we teach. Both are necessary tasks for any faithful pastor. It was one of my mentors who said once that a pastor who only feeds the sheep and never warns the sheep is only fattening them up for the kill. And there's a truth to that. There's a part where we have to warn a healthy diet makes a healthy Christian. And a healthy diet is comprises of we have to warn and we have to teach. And every single one of you who are parents, you know what that is like. You know that to be true in the life of your kids. So the first thing he says is to convince. The second thing is to rebuke. And rebuke here is even stronger word than the word convince. It's implying more of an authority and less of an argument. It conveys the idea of a sharp and severe reprimand. It's having the boldness to say, hey, you're wrong on that and you need to repent. In other words, we can't be afraid of confrontation. We can't be afraid. If we're really going to love our brothers and sisters, we can't be afraid of confrontation. Now, I don't think that's anybody's, you know, singular ministry. I, I had somebody once say that to me. That's my singular ministry is confrontation. I'm like, I don't think it is because the Bible says that we're to strive to be at peace with all men. But there is times where the most loving thing that we can do with somebody is to confront them about something going on in their life that isn't right. 
It's not loving to just overlook something when, when somebody is in sin. It was Greg Loring who said this in his book, The Upside Down Church. He said, a church that has a steady diet of feel-good sermons in place of good, solid theology and sound teaching from the scriptures will eventually produce a congregation of weak believers. There's a truth to that. I think William Barclay said it even better. He said, any pastor whose teaching tends to make men think less of sin is a menace to Christianity and to mankind. That's heavy, isn't it? So we're to convince and rebuke, and some of you are thinking, man, that sounds really harsh, Pastor Rob. Well, here's the balance. The next thing he says is to exhort, to exhort. And this word exhort has the nuance of encouraging someone to right behavior. In fact, one translation put it this way, to give comfort. And here's the the fact of the matter. There are some people that need a rebuke, And there are others that need an encouragement. And if you encourage those who need rebuking, you will assist them in their sinning. Let me say that again. If you just are encouraging those who need rebuking, you're going to just encourage them in their sin. But if you rebuke those who need encouragement, you'll radically discourage them. Someone has said that the preacher's job is to comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable. (laughs) I like that. It was John MacArthur who gave this insight. After having reproved and rebuked disobedient believers unto his care, the faithful preacher is then to come alongside them in love and encourage them to spiritual change. So Paul is telling Timothy, His final charge, preach the word. And it needs to involve this. You need to convince, you need to rebuke, and you need to exhort, and don't miss this last part, with all long-suffering in teaching. Or you could say, and all long-suffering in your teaching. And I think this is one of the most important things for any of us who are involved in ministering to people and serving Jesus is to remember this, that we have to be patient. We've got to be patient with people that we are ministering to. We have to be patient in our teaching because here's why. If we're all honest about ourselves, growth takes time. Change takes time. None of us grow overnight. And this is what I've come to learn. Sometimes people don't get it the first time or the second time. Or the third time. Or the tenth time. They just, they just, they don't, they don't get it. And listen, it's our job, whether it's from this setting in, in the pulpit or a home Bible study or you just ministering to a friend and talking to our, to a friend. It's our job to faithfully deliver the truth and it's the Holy Spirit's job to bring change. It's not your job. It's not my job. I was recently talking with a young pastor that I've been mentoring from a church up in Oregon, and he, he sent me a couple of his sermons and said, would you listen to these and give me you know, your, your insight and just give me your thoughts? And So I listened to him, and, and uh, he's really good. He's really a gifted uh, preacher. But I noticed in one of them that his tone, he just seemed aggravated. 
So I said, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know you that well, but I just want a little observation. You just seem kind of aggravated in, in that message. And he goes, oh, he goes, I was. <laughs> And he said, you know, I just was frustrated because I felt like there's things that I've been wanting the church to catch and, and, and feel like, you know, I'm just like pouring out my heart. And I just feel like they, they weren't getting it. And, and so I reminded him of this passage to be patient, long-suffering in our teaching. Here's something that I've learned over the years. And hopefully this will make sense. But as a young pastor, I can honestly say this, that my biggest source of discouragement was when I would see people in the church that I just felt like, you know, they're, they've been walking with the Lord for a long time, and I just felt like they should know better, you know? And I'm just watching, you know, them gossip or give in to bitterness or, or have these attitudes or, you know, just different things. And I used to just get so frustrated. And I'd find myself just like, like just being really upset and just feeling like, man, and, and then putting it on myself. It must be me, you know. I'm not doing a good enough job, you know. And, and, and I just would really, really get frustrated with that. But I came to this place, and again, I hope this makes sense, but I just completely lowered my expectations. Because see, this is, this is what my thinking was, is I was just expecting everybody that I knew who claimed to be Christians to act like Christians. <laughs> and that makes a lot of sense when you think about it, but then when you throw in the equation that we are flawed people and we are living in this world and we're always battling our flesh all the time and we're always going through you know, all these different things that a lot of times we don't act like Christians. We don't do the things that we're supposed to do. We don't speak to our spouses the way that we should speak to them you know, in, in different situations. And so I just completely lowered my expectations. And you know what? That was such a blessing because... I was disappointed a lot less and surprised a lot more. Like when people were responding in the right way, I was like, that's awesome, you know? And then I started to realize that they were actually, a lot of them were doing it a lot more than I thought. So that might be helpful for you. But uh, now, now Paul is going to give the reason why Timothy needs to be faithful to preach the word. Here in verse 3, notice he says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. I think Paul is implying here and warning here that there would come a time when there would be a temptation for Timothy to not preach the word, to not be true to the word, to be tempted to soften the truth. Because Paul is telling us that there were, a time would come when there would be a sharp division in the church and it would be over the subject of sound doctrine. 
that there would be those believers and churches that would adhere to sound doctrine, that would appreciate sound doctrine, that would want to stand on sound doctrine, but there would also be those churches and believers that would be focused on giving people what they want to hear. That there would be those who would want to itch their ears. And there's an abundance, Paul said. Notice what he says. There will be heap of teachers. They will heap up. In other words, there's going to be a lot of them that they're going to say, hey, we like this guy because he tells us what we want to hear. And Paul is saying, Timothy, you got to make a choice. Are you going to be focused on being true to the word and your calling, or are you going to be focused on being liked by people? Because that's really what it's about. You see, if you itch people's ears and scratch their backs by telling them what they want to hear, you'll be liked by a lot of people. A lot of people are like, oh, I love to hear that guy. He just motivates me, you know. And there are those today that they're more of a motivational teacher than they are of a speaker, than they are of a Bible teacher. Our job, but I love, I think it was Swindoll or Warren Wearsby who said that, that this handling God's word is a high and holy calling. Man, I agree with that. It's a high and holy calling. But I think that there are, in some of these churches where the focus is on just, hey, let's just give them what they want to hear. There's a lot of people there, but some of them are, lost but they think they're fine and that is really really sad in fact i was talking to a friend of mine just recently who took over a church recently that is kind of what was a big 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 seeker sensitive church and he became the pastor there just recently and he said robbie goes it was crazy because they wouldn't talk about sin they wouldn't talk about hell There's nothing in their statement of faith about either of those things. He says, so I had to like rewrite everything. And he's, God's using him to, you know, bring this church back to a balance. A lot of people, but great at drawing the crowds, but not of making disciples. And as I mentioned Sunday, that's our, that's the great commission, make disciples. Okay. So God is, is, is using him to change the culture of that church, and I, it, it's amazing. I pray for him. That church is getting very, very healthy, and I thank the Lord for that. But we are living in a day and age where it seems that opinions and feelings are what matters the most to people. I've had people who profess to be Christians kids who have grown up in, in Christian homes, who even in, in this church who have said to me, I know what you think. I know that you think I shouldn't be sleeping with my boyfriend or I shouldn't be living with my girlfriend, but I feel that it's fine. We love each other and, and you know we're not doing anything wrong. And my response is always, your fight isn't with me. <laughs> it's with God. Because he says in his word that we're to flee sexual immorality. He says that sexual immorality is a sin. And, and just so you know, in case you're, you're wondering about this, the term sexual immorality does not, 
don't think there's any kids in here. Um, the, the, the term sexual immorality is not referring only to intercourse. It refers to anything that causes arousal. So some of these people think, oh, we, you know, we're not sleeping together, but they're just doing everything else. And like, we're okay. No. No. And I've had just a plethora of other things of, you know, it's okay if I smoke pot, get a little high. No, the Bible calls that pharmacia, okay? They'll say things to me like, you know, I know, I know what you say, you know, you think that, that, you, that just all drinking is wrong, but, but, you know, we're not getting drunk. And this is what they mean by that. We're not falling over, passed out. But they got a big old buzz going on. And they're asking their wife or girlfriend to drive them home. And I'm like, why didn't you drive home? Well, I don't know, you know. Because they knew if they got pulled over, they'd get a DUI. But this, this mindset of just, you know, wanting to do what feels good to them. Listen, you can't pick and choose the Bible verses that you're going to believe and obey. We saw in chapter 3, verse 16, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Everybody say all. Doesn't say some. Says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That means it's God breathed, it's God spoke, and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God or the woman of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. And as Tyler mentioned last week, Warren Wiersbe, I love this quote, said that it's profitable for doctrine, that's what is right. For reproof, that's what's not right. For correction, that's how to get right. And then for instruction, that's how to stay right. It's great thing for us to remember about the Word of God. So preaching the truth is essential for spiritual growth, essential for health and maturity. So Paul's first admonition to Timothy is preach the Word, stay true to the Word, and we see his next three admonitions there in verse 5. Notice he says, but you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, and do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. He tells them, first of all, to be watchful. That means to be on alert. Be on alert. Be watching out for your flock. Be on alert, Timothy. Be watching for false teachers. Don't be taken off guard. It's a good word for all of us. Endure affliction. And Timothy was pastoring in time of great persecution. So he's, he's encouraging him to stand strong against the growing persecution, remembering, again, we saw this last week, everyone who desires to uh, live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's a promise. And then do the work of an evangelist. In other words, be gospel-centric. Never start, stop Making Jesus the focus is what he's saying here. You know, some people have the gift of evangelism. I think people who have the gift of evangelism are people who can share the gospel with results. 
They share the gospel and people just get saved. It could be in a coffee shop, a restaurant, at the park, or it could be at a crusade. Greg Laurie, he is a, um, somebody who has that gift of evangelism. But you know, all pastors, Paul says here, are to do the work of an evangelist. And what that means is we have to be faithful to the gospel. Be faithful to preach the gospel. And realize that Paul, what he said in Romans is that the gospel, and this is something for all of us to understand, because sometimes, you know, we, we can find ourselves, like, I'll say this, you know, for me as a, as a pastor, especially when I was young, in fact, I'll tell you this, this is a little, this is kind of funny. When I was a youth pastor, my pastor, Brian Broderson, brought me a box of Greg Glory cassette tape Bible studies. Remember the cassette tapes? Remember those? Okay. So a whole box of these things. And he said, listen to these and try to preach like that. So I started listening to Greg. And I would literally, I would sit there and listen to him. I would write down everything that he said because I'm more of a, a visual learner. I, I'm a reader uh, more than a you know, listener. So I, I, would, I would write down everything that he said. And I came to find out, he talks a lot faster than I do. And I was like, I could never say all of that. I can't be that. And for a long time, I was like discouraged. Like, man, I can't preach the gospel like Greg, you know. And, but then the Lord ministered to me one time, and, and he just said to me, you know, listen. What did, what did Paul say? That the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. We just need to get it out. We just need to share it. We just need to be faithful to it, to preach the gospel. That's for all of us. You don't have to be worried, oh, I'm not eloquent, or I'm, I'm not, I can't speak, like, or I can't you know, do this. You just share the simple message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and let it do its thing in people's hearts. Because it's the power. You're not the power. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. And then notice that last line he says, and fulfill your ministry. In other words, do not quit until the end. Don't quit. You keep doing what God has called you to do. And it's at this point that Paul gives some insight into how he personally finished well. We'll pick it up in verse 6. Notice he says, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, and finally there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but, to, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Here's what Paul's telling us. Finishing well doesn't happen by accident. It happens through deliberate focus and attitude. And in one paragraph, Paul shares three important things that really led to how and why he finished well. He tells us about his present outlook concerning his suffering and his impending death. He tells us his past approach to life. 
and he tells us his future hope that kept him going all of those years. And let's break it down in that way. First of all, we see his present outlook concerning his suffering. He was in prison, remember, when he writes this, and his impending death. For he says in verse 6, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. When Paul says that he is being poured out as a drink offering, he's referring to an Old Testament ritual that accompanied certain sacrifices. You see, the law mandated that the, when a worshiper brought a sacrifice, that part of the sacrifice would be consumed on the altar, and then part of it would be given to the priest to consume. And that was how the priests lived. I mean, they got to eat a lot of steak because, you know, they were consuming part of the, the, the sacrifice. But when the offering was consumed by fire, sometimes the worshiper would pour what they called a drink offering of wine on the burning sacrifice. And all the wine was to be poured out, every single drop. None of it was to be given to the priest. And that was symbolic of total surrender. And as the wine hit the burning coals, it evaporated, and this sweet aroma arose from the altar. Now keep in mind that wine is symbolic of joy in the Old Testament. And so the drink offering was a symbolic way of saying, I am gladly giving my all. I'm gladly giving all that I am and all that I have to the Lord. My life is given as as this symbol of my wholehearted devotion and commitment to the Lord. Nothing is being held back, and I'm doing it gladly. I'm not doing it out of obligation. I'm doing it out of joy. So when Paul is speaking of his death as a drink offering, this is what he's telling Timothy. Timothy, I'm all in. I'm all in. And you know that about me. I've always been all in. He hasn't even been condemned yet. He hasn't been sentenced to death yet, but he says, I'm already being poured out. Paul was saying, I'm ready to gladly lay down my life for the Lord. You see, Paul lived with this mindset, and I think it's a great mindset for us all to have. Paul said in the book of Philippians, for me to live is Christ. For me to live is Jesus. That's what I'm about. My life is about living for Jesus, and to die, that's gain. Then I get to go to heaven. I get to be in his presence. Paul also declared in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. Notice that, past tense. I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That was Paul's present outlook. I'm a drink offering because I've been crucified with Christ. I'm all in. For me to live is Christ. Then we see in verse 7 his his past approach to life. Notice he says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. We could say that Paul lived a laser-focused life. Notice he says, I fought 
And I want you to underline or circle these words. The good fight. Notice the the. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. He doesn't say, I fought a good fight, or I finished a race, or even my race. But he says, no, I fought the good fight. Paul was laser focused on his mission and vision, and his mission and vision was contending for the faith. His mission and vision was winning souls for Christ. And listen to me. In my opinion, the weakness of the church today is in our in, 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 the weakness of the church today in our current culture stems from this one problem. Many Christians have no idea why they exist. Many Christians have no idea. Why they are here on planet Earth. But the Bible makes it very, very clear that our singular purpose on this Earth is to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ. In the workplace, in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in the places where we hang out. And some Christians, they just don't Get that. And because of that, their lives lack purpose. Their lives lack direction. They go from one thing to the next, and they they just still feel empty. Guys, we're not here to just make money and have fun and enjoy life. Nothing wrong with those things. But they are all secondary to our primary purpose, which is to be ambassadors for Jesus Christ. That we're here on this earth to represent Jesus Christ. And if you start looking at your life through that lens, everything in your life will take on a whole new meaning and a whole new purpose. So Paul's approach to life was that he was laser-focused on his mission and his vision to be an ambassador for Jesus. That's why I'm here. And then he gives us the reason in verse 8 for his approach to life, his future hope that kept him going all these years. Notice he says, Finally there is laid up for me the crown of life, their crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. You know, you've heard me the last few weeks mention our good friend Dwayne Swanson. And Dwayne Swanson went home to be with Jesus a week and a half ago. And all the time that Dwayne was knowing he was going to die, he knew. His, his days were numbered. He knew the cancer that had attacked his body was, was going to win that fight. And, and, and he knew that. And, and he would always refer to his passing, his upcoming passing, as his graduation. And I just love that. It was his graduation. In fact, we're having his memorial service next month, and, and he, he's calling it his graduation. That's how Paul looked at it. This is my graduation. 
This is, this is, you know, Paul lived and understood this truth about life, that life is not about, not just about, not primarily about the here and now, it's about the there and then. Paul understood, and I hope, you've heard me say this, I hope you get this, Paul understood that later is longer. You know, we live here on this planet for 70, 80 90 years, 95 if we're unlucky, you know. Um, I don't want to live that long. I'm sorry if, if, if you are approaching that age and loving it, but I don't want to live um, to be in my 90s. I don't. I really don't. I'm taking care of myself, but I'm like, Lord, I just know. But even if you live to 103, 104, 105, and that does sound like a long, long time, right? But that is nothing in comparison to eternity. We have eternity to look forward to. You've heard me say this before. This life is the prologue. You know, a prologue to a book, I love this analogy. A prologue to to a book is always, it's like the story before the story. It kind of sets up the story of what the story is really going to be. That's what this life is. The real story is what we're going to be doing with Jesus for eternity. When he comes back and we come back with him and we're ruling and reigning and he gives us jobs to do, that's where we're headed, folks. Later is longer. Paul understood that. He understood that we're to be laying up treasures in heaven, not here on earth. Paul chose to be earthly poor so he could be heavenly rich. By faith, he sees a day when he's going to receive his reward from the Lord. Notice it's a guaranteed reward. He says, it's laid up for me. You have a reward laid up for you. All of us are going to stand before the Lord, and we're going to be rewarded for the life that we lived here for him. It's a guaranteed reward, but it's also a glorious reward. It's a crown, he says, of righteousness. And I love this. It's not just for Paul. But it's for anyone, he says, who just loves his appearing. That means anybody who's just like, Lord, I'm just, I'm just looking for you to come back. Lord, I'm excited for you to come back. I'm just hoping and praying, Lord, that maybe it might be today. It's for those who are living with an expectation of that. But here's the thing. We are to live with an expectation that Jesus could come back at any moment. But hear me on this. Please hear me on this. And I'm almost done. We are going to get through this whole chapter. We also need to live, though, realizing that it could still be years from now. And we do that by remembering why we're here to be ambassadors, to invest time pouring into others, building up other believers and building relationships with unbelievers in the hopes of modeling Jesus for them, in the hopes that they might see something different in us. Remember, it was Peter who said this, that we need to be ready to give an answer to anyone who would ask us for the hope that we have in us. But here's what I want you to think about on this. People are not going to ask you that question who don't know you. 
People are not going to ask you that question. Hey, what, what's, you seem to be so hopeful. How come? They're not going to ask you that question until they have observed you for a while. A stranger who doesn't know you at all isn't going to walk up to you and ask you that question. If it happens, it's extremely rare because they don't know you. But when a person sees your life and a person gets to know you and they're watching you day in and day out and they're watching you deal with and handle difficult situations like my friend Chrissy today as we were having a memorial service for her mother and she got up and spoke and she cried about how much that she was going to miss her mom. But then she also talked about, but, but I know I'm going to see my mom in heaven because, and she preached Jesus to all the people that were there. It's only as people get to see you in that type of situation when you're going through some difficult times and they're seeing how you're handling it and they're watching you and and how you're dealing with what's going on around you and what's going on in culture and you're not freaking out like everyone else. It's only then that they're going to ask us that question. And that's why I always say, in our prophecy updates and our prophecy conferences that we're going to have here you know, in a week, that the goal and the purpose of us teaching about Bible prophecy is not to create a mindset in any of you of escapism. That mentality that says, Lord, I just can't handle this anymore. Just come get us out of here. If that's the mentality, if that's what you're walking out with, we didn't do our job. Because the, the, the goal... It's not escapism, it's activism. It's realizing we're here to be ambassadors. We're here because there's people who are going to hell and Jesus wants us to reach them and that's why he's put us here. And so he wants us to be building relationships with people that don't know him so that as they watch us and get to know us, they might ask us, you know, you, you just seem hopeful. How come? How come? We need to understand that, church. Now, after admonishing Timothy in his calling, Paul ends this book with some final words that we see here in verses 9 through 22. Let's read this section. He says, Be diligent to come to me quickly, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica, Cretans for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me in the ministry. And Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. Bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas when you come, and the books, especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. You also must beware of him, for he has greatly resisted our words. At my first defense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me that all the Gentiles might hear. Also, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion and the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Priscilla and Aquila and the household of Anisarus and Erastus Stayed in Corinth, but Trophimus 
I have left in Miletus sick. Do your uttermost to come before winter. Eubulus greets you as well as Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all the brethren. The Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. I want to break this final section up very quickly in this way. We see Paul's request. We see the people. And we see the comfort. We see his request in verse 9 as well as in verse 21. He tells Timothy, come quickly, come see me, and come before winter. You see, the journey was going to take Timothy four to six months over land and sea to come and visit um, Paul from where he was traveling from. And so he told him, come before winter, because Paul knew if he delayed, he probably wasn't going to make it. Because it would have been really hard to come in the winter. His second request was, there in verse 11, to bring Mark. And this is such a great story. We talked about it a few Sundays ago. Remember there in Acts chapter 15, where um, Paul and Barnabas are getting ready to go on their second missionary journey. We saw in Acts chapter 13, when they were moving from one place to another in their um, first missionary journey, that the first chance that Mark got to bail he just thought, you know, ministry was too hard. He bailed. So at the second missionary journey, Barnabas, whose name means son of encouragement, he's like, hey, let's get Mark and bring him with us again. And Paul's like, no way. That guy's a flake. He can't come. And, and we saw there in Acts chapter 15 that it, it got to be such a contention between the two of them because Paul's like, no, I don't think he's ready. And Barnabas is like, oh, I think he needs a second chance. That it says that Paul and Barnabas actually split up. Paul went one way, and Barnabas went and got John Mark, and they went down to Cyprus. But with the beautiful part, the beautiful thing I love about this story, and this is, you know, I, I talked about this on Sunday, was you know, John Mark went on to have a very fruitful ministry. And here we see at the end of Paul's life, he says, bring Mark with you because he's useful to me in the ministry. And it's like, oh, I love that. I love that. That's such an encouragement to all of us who have failed in, at one time or another that, man, our God, he's the God of the second chance. So he says, bring Mark. His third request is bring my cloak, my books, and my parchment. And I just love this. I love this because here's Paul. At the end of his life, he knows that he's going to be beheaded pretty soon, and he's just wanting to stay busy. Hey, bring my books, bring my parchment. I got some more things I can write, and it's getting cold, so bring my coat. I love that. Because I'll be honest with you, when, when, I'm, when I'm going through hard times, man, I can, I can have a pity party really quick. And Paul gives us a good example of a great way not to do that is stay busy. Stay busy in the work of the Lord. So he, those are his requests. And we see the people. There's two hurtful, and the rest are people who were blessings to him. He first of all mentions Demas, who had been Paul's fellow worker, and he says he has forsaken him. And he says why? Because he loved this present world. And I just want to tell you this. Demas radically backslid. He loved this present world. And listen to me, listen to me, church. That is something that does not happen overnight. It's not just one day somebody's on fire and the next day they have forsaken the Lord because they love the world. That's, that's something that happens subtly by making little compromises along the way. I just want to encourage you in that. I was talking with a friend of mine 
about a guy who used to minister with me in Oregon. And, and it's so sad because he's like Demas. He's just nowhere today with the Lord. Gifted, gifted guy, incredible worship leader, just nowhere. And it's so sad. You see that. You see that. I've seen that with, with, with people. John said this, listen, he said in, in 1 John chapter 2, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride, is li- pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. The next guy he mentions who was a problem is in verse 14, Alexander the coppersmith. Paul says, he did me a lot of harm. And we'll read about him in the book of Acts. But it's interesting, the word harm could also in the Greek be translated informer. And this might have been part of the harm. He was the one that maybe, you know, kind of turned Paul over to the Romans. And his name is linked in the, in, Paul mentioned in his first letter to Timothy to a guy by the name of Hymenus. And both of them, Paul said this, if you remember back in 1 Timothy, I have delivered them to Satan, Satan, that's pretty harsh, that they might learn not to blaspheme. And so Timothy might, is going to be passing through this area where Alexander the coppersmith was, and he says, hey, watch out for him, because he'll do you harm. He's not a good guy. But notice where the apostle kind of rests his heart. He says, may the Lord repay him for his deeds. And I just love that. Because you can look at that two ways. You can look at that like, like David. Lord, just kill him. You know, that's how David used to pray, right? Lord, just kill him. My enemy, just kill him. Just, just take his eyes out. You know, David would pray crazy things like that. But this was also, I think, Paul's way of just saying, Lord, it's up to you. You take care of that guy. So Paul would write in Romans, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So he mentions these two hurtful guys, and then he mentions those who were blessings. Um, in verse 10, Cretans has gone to Galatia, Tida to Dalmatia. Both of these guys had gone out in missions. Tychicus to Ephesus to take over for Timothy when Timothy was going to come and visit Paul. Good old dependable Luke, his physician, his biographer. He mentions Aquila and Priscilla who were tent makers by trade, but who ministered in the gospel, and, and they warmed his heart. He mentions the household of Anisiphorus, and Paul mentioned him in chapter 1. Remember, he said that, that it was Onesiphorus when he came to Rome. He traveled a great way, and he, he went through all the prisons looking for me. He searched me out, and Paul said this, and he refreshed me often. So these were faithful brothers and sisters that Paul could count on, and, and they just blessed him. And i got to tell you, as a pastor, I experience this. When I see you guys just going for it, it just so blesses my heart. It so blesses me. But then he says of Trophimus in verse 20, he says, I left him in Miletus sick. And I want you to notice Paul doesn't say, I left him there in Miletus because he, was, he lacked faith. That's why he's sick. He doesn't say anything like that. But there are those today who will teach that type of thing. Oh, you're sick. That means that you are lacking faith. What about the faith of the person who's doing the praying? I'm sure Paul prayed for him. 
Now, Paul doesn't say anything like that because Paul knew sometimes you pray for somebody and they get healed and sometimes they don't. So he goes, I left him there so that he could heal. And finally, the comfort we see in verse 16. Notice again. And at my first defense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them. Oh, I love that heart. It's like Jesus. Lord, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. A lot of the people didn't stand with Paul because they were afraid of Nero. He was a crazy guy. Paul says, hey, no one stood with me, but that's okay. May it not be charged against them, but I love this, but the Lord stood with me. And you might find yourself in a place tonight where you feel all alone, but you're not all alone because Jesus is with you. He's standing with you. He stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all the Gentiles might, might hear. And also I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion and the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. I love that. Paul's saying, hey, a lot of people, some of my friends, they didn't stand with me, but... <laughs> But Jesus did. And I personally, I could be wrong, but I, I think it was Paul who wrote the book of Hebrews. My own personal opinion. And in the book of Hebrews, the writer says this. He quotes Jesus, that, that Jesus said that he would never leave us nor forsake us. So that we could boldly say, I will not fear what man can do to me. And I want to leave you with that tonight. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up. And, and I just want to leave you with that thought, no matter what you are going through you know, tonight, that Jesus says, I'm with you. I'm for you. I will never leave you nor forsake you so that you can go through this life with a sense of boldness, no matter what it is that you are personally dealing with, that Jesus, your Lord, your Savior, your Shepherd, the one who loves you and gave himself for you, he will never, ever abandon you. He's with you in the fire. He's with you in the storm. He's with you in the most difficult things. He's with you through the sickness. And he just wants to manifest his self, his joy, his peace in your heart in the midst of that difficulty. Father, we thank you for our time here tonight, God, we thank you for your word. I thank you, Lord, for just these folks who, who have come out tonight, who have that desire to just be students of your word. They're not wanting their ears to be itched, and, but they just they want to know you. And so, God, I pray just blessing upon my brothers and sisters tonight. And God, I pray for those who are in the midst of struggling, that that, Lord, they would find their refuge in your words tonight, that you are with them, that you won't leave them, that you're in the midst of that situation. And, God, I pray that they would just find themselves pressing into you. Lord, I pray that all of us would view our lives as that drink offering being poured out for you. That we would remember that we are. The reason why we're here is to be your ambassadors. May we remember that tomorrow when we go to work. And wherever else we find ourselves. We thank you, Lord. We praise you. In Jesus' name.